Morning, everyone. I'm Pastor Stefan. It's great to be with you this morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Begin reading at verse 28. It's on page 1446 in the Bibles provided for you there. Um, So like Sam said earlier, we're working through a sermon series called Abundance Over Scarcity. And we're looking at these, we're following the lectionary in the Gospel of Mark, and we're looking at these texts where Jesus has these interactions, some of them are are confrontations, with his disciples and with a handful of other folks um, who cross his path. And in these interactions, they end up talking about what they have and what they don't have, or what they have to do and what they don't have to do, and how they feel about that. So the idea is... That in the kingdom of God, and that in, in life with Jesus, uh, we, have, we have such abundance. Sometimes it feels like things are scarce. Sometimes it feels like we have so little. But because of what we have in Jesus, we actually have so much abundance. Someone shared something with me this week that I thought was particularly helpful. And it goes like this. Abundance is not something we acquire. It's something that we tune into. Abundance is not something that we acquire, it's something that we tune into. So with that ringing in the back of your minds, let's read the text. Mark 12, beginning at verse 28. Listen to God's word. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, Jesus, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered him wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then then on, no one dared ask Jesus any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. So maybe you could tell by the way the text ends here. Um, But these verses come at the end of a very long string of passages where Jesus is being interrogated by the Pharisees and the Herodians and the teachers of the law. So these are um, the religious and political authorities of of first century Palestine. And all of them, the Pharisees and the Herodians and the teachers of the law, they all passionately disliked Jesus. Okay? Uh, For a wide variety of reasons, they disliked Jesus. And their plan in the last chapter and a half 
was to try to get Jesus to say things that would get him in trouble. So they went on and on for a chapter and a half, grilling Jesus about all the controversial topics that were in the news. They asked him about political authority and about power and about money and about ethnicity and about marriage and about taxes. But over this chapter and a half, what ended up happening more than anything else is that the Pharisees and the Herodians and the teachers of the law ended up making themselves look foolish because Jesus answered their questions so well And while he did that, he managed to point out the hypocrisy of the people who were asking him the tricky questions. So for those groups of people, this was a total loss. Um, And it made them twice as angry at Jesus as they were before. They were absolutely fuming. And if they weren't convinced ahead of time that they were going to have this guy killed, after this stunt that he pulled, they they knew it. They knew this guy had to die. Uh, But then in our text, just before it ends, Jesus gets this final question from this one guy who happens to be a teacher of the law. And so he's standing there on the other side of Jesus and his disciples, at least in my imagination. And then there's this big group of angry men who are asking these tricky questions to Jesus. And, And one of the voices out of that big group of angry men asks this question. Um, And it's something about the question that he asks. And it's something about the way that he asks it. And it's something about the way that he then responds to and interacts with Jesus that you can tell that this guy is not trying to trap him. That there's something different about this guy. And that his heart is open somehow. And he's even beginning to come around to seeing things the way that Jesus sees them. And then they share this tiny little back and forth, him and Jesus, and they both kind of affirm what the other one is saying. And they look at each other and they kind of nod in agreement. And and they're tracking with one another. And Jesus says to them, you know what? Like, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You're on to me, fella. (laughs) You're on to me. Like, I talk all day, and almost nobody understands what I'm saying. But you, in the back, you're catching on. You're starting to get it. You're beginning to understand what I'm saying. So, what was this teacher of the law beginning to understand? What was he beginning to understand? Well, here's what makes this whole exchange between those two guys so interesting. So for a chapter and a half, like I said, Jesus is getting grilled on the Jewish law and all of the applications of the Jewish law, which was a very complex system. Uh, You had the Ten Commandments in the Jewish law, right? Those were the headliners. But then also, scattered throughout the rest of the books of Moses, there were an additional... 603 commandments. You had the big 10, and then you had 603 additional commandments, making a total of 613 laws, many of which were so obscure that the people who tried to follow them might not have even known that they existed. So, 
some of these laws, some of these 613 laws, people didn't know how to apply them. They didn't know how to follow them. Others of them were downright impossible to keep in certain situations. And then some others of them seemed to be word-for-word contradictions of other laws. So you can imagine what it must have felt like to be a person in the first century in in Jewish Palestine trying to figure out how to follow all of these laws. Imagine the stress of trying to satisfy God by following these 613 laws that you couldn't always remember, let alone understand or properly obey. And it made people anxious. Hence, the Herodians and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law saying, well, let's ask this guy a bunch of questions about this law. All 613 of them. And he's bound to say something ridiculous. So, in our text, verse 28, it says that this teacher, it says, noticing that Jesus had given him a good answer, which must have surprised him, he asked him another question which is quite remarkable. He's not trying to trick Jesus. He's not trying to trap him. In fact, he's moved by Jesus, and he's inspired by Jesus, uh, and and that he he wants to offer him a follow-up. And so he says, so Rabbi, I'm curious, genuinely curious, of all of the commandments, 613 of them, which one is the most important? Rabbi, he says, is there a way to look at the law of God that doesn't place an undue burden on us? Is, Rabbi, is there a way to approach our relationship with the Almighty that doesn't have us anxiously checking boxes? And Jesus says, yes. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is saying that there are essentially two different ways at looking at what God asks of his people. One of them involves a spreadsheet and 613 boxes which have to get checked every single day. And the other is about love. One of them produces a bunch of anxiety and produces a a culture of superiority and one-upmanship, and the other relies upon grace. One of them is a perspective of scarcity, anxiously fearing the wrath of God, and the other is a perspective of abundance, embracing and anticipating the love of God. I wonder if this man's question could be boiled down to this. Rabbi, is God meant to be dreaded or is God meant to be loved? There's a great passage uh, from Jonathan Edwards who is Uh, one of the greatest thinkers in in American history, let alone one of the greatest theologians in American history, Jonathan Edwards writes, True saints are inexpressibly pleased and delighted with the sweet idea of the glorious nature of God. 
Now, I cut out half of that sentence just to try to clarify it, but I'm going to say it one more time, okay? True saints are inexpressibly pleased and delighted with the sweet idea of the glorious nature of God. What a lovely thought. He says, this is the spring of all of their delights. This is the cream of all of their pleasures. It is the joy of their joy. Isn't isn't that interesting? A little bit later, he goes on to say, to think on God and to think on the things of God is ravishing entertainment. You ever thought about thinking about God as being a form of ravishing entertainment? I mean, cancel your Netflix. (laughs) It seems to me that the opponents of Jesus in Mark chapter 12 were unable to understand Jesus because they had at least two things working against them. They had a problem of perspective and they had a problem of performance. I just saw all the note takers go like this. A problem of perspective and a problem of performance. Here's the the problem of, of perspective. You know the saying... Um, don't lose the forest for the trees, right? Don't lose the forest for the trees. Don't lose the perspective of the big picture because you're getting bogged down in little details. I was talking to a marathon runner a few months ago, and she was telling me that when she's in the middle of a race sometimes, she will catch herself counting tenths of a mile. Tenths of a mile. 13.5 miles, 13.6 miles, 13.7 miles. Oh my goodness, I'm only halfway. And she says when she catches herself counting those tenths of a mile, that's when her knees start to hurt. And that's when she starts uh, to lose her perspective. That's when her pace starts to slow. That's when she starts to feel like all of this training that she's been doing for months and months and months aren't going to carry her through to do the thing that she wants to do. I was talking to a writer just this week. And he was telling me that when he has a great big project in his writing, if he can see the thing that he's writing, if he can see the way that that fits into the great big picture, into the great big narrative of the story that he's writing, if he can see how what he's writing fits into that whole thing, he can write thousands of words in a day. Thousands of words in a day. But if he falls into the temptation of seeing a typo, and he goes back and he fixes that little typo, he inevitably sees another little typo. And then he fixes that little typo. And then he thinks... Wait, what was I saying? And he loses track of this whole great big narrative and all of his writing screeches to a stop. I think the same thing can happen in our faith. It's so easy to get over-focused on things that don't deserve all of our focus. Our faith in Jesus is a great, big, grand narrative. And if we get caught up on one or two or 18 of the 613 things, we're going to lose our perspective. 
It's so easy to get over-focused on things that don't deserve our focus. We become so easily burdened by just a few things that shouldn't be such a burden to us. There are some things for which you and I have such a hard time forgiving ourselves. Just one or two or three things in our past that we just can't get beyond. And they don't deserve all of that attention. We're focusing on all of these trees when we're standing in this great big forest, we lose track that the whole thing is about love. Amen. <laughs> now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that, like, hey, all we need is love in a John, Paul, Ringo, and George kind of way. Okay? Oh, all we need is love. I'm not, saying, I'm not trying to say, oh, everybody should just do what makes them happy because that is total chaos. And if you read the words of Jesus, that's not what he is saying either. But I am saying that the law of God and our relationship with God is meant to be liberating. Is it liberating you? If it's not, then you're using it wrong. You got it upside down. It's like you're holding the brush end of the toothbrush. That's not how it works. And sometimes we can get so caught up in one or two or three issues that, 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 are, that are issues of the day, or we can get so caught up in one or two or three things that we've done in our past that we can't get beyond it to see that the whole thing is actually about love. So that's the perspective problem. Here's the performance problem. When you imagine in your mind the ideal Christian person, what do you imagine? What does he look like? What does she look like? I think for most of us, if we, if we are imagining the ideal Christian person, we imagine someone who is really, really obedient. Somebody who is really, really good at performing his or her religious duties. Well, that is not at all the way that Jesus sees it. One of the marks of the Christian faith, of the Christian teaching, is that it's not the most obedient people who are the most Christian. If anything, it's the most forgiven people who are the most Christian. It's not the ones who are the most obsessed with figuring out what those 613 rules are and then, and then trying to imagine in their mind like they're actually following all 613 of them at the same time. No, no, no. It's those who, who understand that they can't possibly follow all 613 of those laws and they surrender that to, to the God who loves them. That's, that's the Christian faith. Um, here at Alger Park Church, we love the story of the prodigal son. If you don't know the story of the prodigal son, when the Lions give up their first touchdown today, Google it, okay? It'll be early in the game. <laughs> Google the story of the prodigal son. It's super, super important to us here. So in the story of the prodigal son, um, it's at, at the very end of the story, you've got two sons. There is um, this, this very obedient very high-performing older brother who finds himself outside of the party, outside of the tent, 
outside of the flow of the love of the Father, even though he's just so incredibly obedient. And then it's the very foolish, very humbled, very low-performing brother who finds himself in the tent and in the party. I mean, he never would have imagined back into the loving arms of his father, being swept away in the love of God. That's the nature of the Christian faith. Swept away in the love of God. That's hard for a group of people like us. That's hard for a group. We got to know ourselves, folks. That's hard for a group of people who, who value performance as highly as we do. Let's be honest. People who value performance as highly as we do. It is hard to have a faith where performance simply isn't the measuring stick for discipleship. Our faith isn't measured by our performance output. Our faith is measured by our grace input. How's your grace input today? It's pretty good. Your grace input? Can we tune into that abundance? There's abundance there for us. Can we tune into that abundance? Us performance-loving people, us performance-admiring people, can we tune into that abundance? Can we tune into that grace? So for Jesus... And for this teacher of the law, who was not far, Jesus said, he was, he was thrilled. He was a little surprised, but he was thrilled. This teacher of the law who was not far from the kingdom of God, for us and for that guy, the question boils down to this. Is God to be dreaded or is he to be loved? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we're incredibly grateful and yet incredibly hesitant to step into the place where we would receive your grace. We are incredibly grateful and yet incredibly hesitant to begin to understand that your grace is entirely unmerited. We thank you for your love for us, Jesus, which is so great that it comes to us in spite of ourselves. And we pray that we would continue to develop into the men and women and girls and boys that you would have us be to focus less on our performance output and more on our grace input. Cause us to delight in you, Jesus. May a a smile sweep over our faces when we think of you. May you be a source of entertainment and joy for us. We thank you that you've begun good work in us and that you are faithful to bring it to completion. Bring us into your abundance, Lord. Amen.